So every year at about this time, since 2017, when we were planted as an independent church in 2016, our very first New Year's, we decided to set the discipline of, at the beginning of the year, taking a few Sundays and discussing, describing who we are as a church. Um, there's several reasons why this would need to be the case, why we would need to do that. It is a discipline um, in that um, I'm, I'm very excited about jumping into and digging into the book of Luke, like that's where my brain in so many ways is. But I think this is a good discipline, and it once again has proved out um, that it should be. One is, if, you've, if you run a, a business or a family or anything like that, you know how quickly uh, mission drift can set in. This is why we exist, and then before you know it, um, there's this crisis over here, and there's this panic over here, and there's this fire over here, and this squirrel over here, and you're kind of doing this kind of stuff. And you can imagine, especially um, how hard this is for churches as a whole, now have it be a church where I'm the lead pastor, and imagine how hard it is staying on focus can be. And so for us, to have, that was meant to be funny. Like, that was like nothing. Like, wow. Either Okay, so uh, you're like, yep. Um, okay, so uh, how, do we, how do we do that as a church? Well, one of them is to make sure that, and so that we don't get so distracted and off course, and we end up existing in a sense or in a way that we shouldn't even exist. I mean, I'll talk more about that in a minute. Um, so we do this every, new, every year to, to focus in again. I, I think it's really important um, that we want to stay away from these constant little fires that cause this kind of drift and distractions. Now, that being said, I'm going to start today with a distraction, um, but I think it's a good one. Uh, it's worthwhile. Um, anybody? I know it's a little dark, but if anybody can recognize this sweet uh, young couple who 50 years ago got married, maybe you can recognize them now. Um, that's the O'Neills, and so I don't know if they were here. They're probably like traveling or something if they're um, for the 50th. But um, what a great celebration! So those of you who are newlyweds <coughs> or newly married, lock their face into your brain, and then go find them some Sunday, and <coughs> you know, bribe them with lunch or coffee or something. Get time with them and ask them how did you get there, and you're still smiling. Like that's a, those those combination of things is a great thing to, be, uh, to, to experience and to learn from, to learn from them. In fact, let me just take a second. How many other 50 plus year marriages do I have in the room? I know there's a few. Excellent. Congratulations. Thank you guys. That is a worthwhile distraction um, because disciple making is what we're all about. And that's a, that's a great version of that. Okay. So um, last week, um, when Dr. Bob gave the sermon last week and did, and, and uh, when we were celebrating our 30th, um, always celebrating our 30th, so we're, we're, we're running to chase, we're catching up with you 50th, we got only get 20 more years. So he focused on, uh, on, on like some of the things in our individual lives that we need to be focusing our attention on, primarily, of course, our intimacy with Christ. And I, I love the way he unpacked that for us and asked us to focus our attention there. And so we spend these few Sundays making sure we're still in alignment or back in alignment. Remember, Jesus actually used the analogy, said his followers were like people who put their hand to the plow. Now, we don't really do much plowing now anymore like that, but here's the idea. He said, if you put your hand to the plow and you look back, <laughs> you're not fit to work in the kingdom. Well, that's because that's a purely practical statement. If you put your hand to the plow and you're going to plow a straight line and you look back, what are you actually going to do? Yeah, you're going to plow a circle. That's how that works. Your human beings don't do that. We drift, we drift. We're drawn by wherever our eyes are. And so and that's a very practical statement. We need to keep our eyes on Christ and what his purpose for us is 
that allows us to then stay on target, stay on track. So if nothing else, even while we're going through God's word throughout the year, it's good for us to take a minute, remember who we are, and then to touch on a few other fun aspects as well. Keep our eyes forward on him. First and most important, which we will always come to, is this. This is, from an ownership perspective, this is not your church, nor mine. It is Christ's church. That is key. It is the absolute fundamental. You can't move back from that. <clears throat> Only from a shepherding perspective or a stewardship perspective can we say, it's my church. It's our church in that he has entrusted it to us. And an ethic that still exists here in the South, at least in Texas, is that I'm supposed to treat your stuff even better than I treat my stuff, right? And so that, that if I borrow something from you and I break it, I get to replace it. I should return it to you in as good a form or better than I got it. Um, one of our kids recently has learned that, learned, had to learn, we've had to discuss that lesson. A friend's toy broke, and then he's in a situation to go like, well, you, you, let's hope that the store replaces it. Otherwise, you're going to be replacing it because it broke under your watch, right, while you were there. That's an important rule. Well, this, that's a, that applies here. If it was my church, I could do whatever I wanted to with it. It's not my church. I have to do what he wants to with it. And that's our goal. That's our intention. We'll sing at the end of this pass, at the end of this time this morning, in the sermon, we're going to sing, Be Thou My Vision, the song that our leadership board sings or prays every meeting to say, we want you, this is your vision, we want your vision, your wisdom, your best thought, you be those things to us, not us. <clears throat> now, we started this again, the We Are His series, we unpacked this, you can go to the website and go back and we pack, I think those are all even packaged together, if not, we can do that. All the different, these, all these different January little mini sermon series to talk about who we are and what that means. But this is first. This is key. If we obey Christ and the church burns down and no one is here, we have succeeded. If we disobey Christ and the church, we have buildings stacked on top of buildings and we have 10 miles high and we have 10 million people attending, we have failed. Obedience to Christ is the only meaningful measure of success for us as a church. That's it. Now, we could talk about other measurables, but understand those measurables are just good things to talk about and learn from. They do not designate success or failure. Obedience to Christ is the only success or failure that we can have as a church. We are at a cultural crossroads. Now, maybe that's the only kind of roads that cultures exist in. It seems like we're always in a cultural crossroad. I'm going to unpack before we're done today what I think the main question, the main question we've got to decide and our culture is deciding about where we are and how we're going to respond to that in a minute. But understand, this story happened at a cultural crossroads. Jesus walked a long way with his 12 young followers all the way to Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi was the den of iniquity. It was a, a, a hive of scum and villainy. It is, it is the, one of the worst places you could have experienced back then. He walks his young students all the way there. When they get there, they see this going on, make Vegas look like a playground. And he says, who do these people say that I am? And the disciples throw out a bunch of answers, okay? Who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Here in this place, in that place, Jesus walked them all the way there to have this conversation. Jesus' response to him is, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, Simon the son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Only God could give you this insight. You didn't come up with this on your own. 
And then he says, and I tell you, you are Peter, Petros, the rock, the stone. And on this rock, I will build my church. I believe this is the moment of the foundation of the church of Jesus Christ. It was right here in Caesarea. He chose that place of all places to found his church. The den of iniquity is where I'm going to, the seat of Satan is where I'm going to found my church. It's one of my favorite places to teach when we go to Israel. When we go, one of the things I love is when we go, all of the temples and all of the gods being worshipped and all the different ways that they were worshipped, which I won't talk about in a mixed crowd like this, all the different ways that they were worshipped, they're gone. Bare stone is all that's there. Holes and caves where temples used to be carved into the mountainside are now all empty. You know who's there? The only people who are ever there are Christian teachers teaching this story now. The gates of hell truly have been absolutely destroyed in that location. They're dust. And it's a great picture of the truth of that. This is how this works. For every church we face these moments and we have to decide, what are we going to do? Who is Christ to us? Is he the anointed one, the son of the living God? And if he is, he has a mandate for us and we need to figure out what that is and to be always evaluating how good a job we're doing of following him. Now, some of you may have seen and some of you may not have, what our logo actually is um, as a church. And you may have seen it and never even considered, like, what does that mean? Or, or what, is that, what is that logo supposed to communicate? Well, twice in Exodus 7, twice, once in Exodus 17 and once in Exodus 20, God provides water for his people from bare stone. That's the imagery being created here, is that we're just a bunch of bare stones with nothing really to offer, but because of what Christ has done in us, we now can provide through his truth, through his life, um, the eternal life that people are really looking for. Not mere, listen, not mere comfort, freedom. Comfort is cheap and it's easy to sell and it's easy to push and it's what our culture has decided to accept is comfort. It's the weak, pathetic counterfeit for freedom. Freedom is the powerful version. Freedom is what Christ offers, but freedom only comes through truth, through accepting and living a life according to the truth. That's what he's called us to, and that's what we have. We have truth, something greater than comfort, something worth being uncomfortable for, something worth dying for. That's actually the picture. This is what he's brought to us, this living water. So here we have that. So that's the original from Exodus. Then you have the prophecy in Isaiah um, that God gives. Behold, I'm doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do not perceive it. I'll make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. The wild beasts will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches. For I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert to give drink to my chosen people, the people whom I form for myself that they may declare my praise. Someday, God said through Isaiah, I'm going to take these deserts and I'm going to bring up wells, springs all over the place in the midst of these deserts. Even the desert creatures who never have enough water will have enough water. Water where there is none. Now, what is this water? Is it just simple H2O? No, I don't think so. Jesus interprets this, not only maybe through the story of Exodus, but certainly I think he is interpreting this Isaiah prophecy with the woman at the well. And he says this, Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water, meaning the water out of the well, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of this water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. If I may, a quick story. This well still exists 
because of who we use as a guide. It's deep in the West Bank, and so most people can't go see it, but we've gotten to go see it last two times we've been, Jacob's Well. Um, and you go see there, and it struck me there was a parable there. It's, it's a deep well, just like the Bible says it is, and, and it's, again, been there for thousands of years. Now there's a church built on top of it and all that kind of stuff. But what struck me that was wild is we, we, they were pulling up water out of it, and someone showing their flashlight down in it, and how, how appropriate is this? There was trash floating down in the water where people had thought, you know what would be fun would be to throw a banana peel down into Jacob's well or to throw my sonic cup down into Jacob's well or whatever. Like, what, what a travesty, and yet, exactly. That is exactly what the world does when it discovers something as precious and valuable as living water in the middle of a desert, is all it can think to do is pollute even it. That's our job, is we protect this spring of living water. So now that you see it, now that you understand the picture, now you can embrace what's happening when you see this happen. This is us, bare stone, becoming springs of living water, um, just, as, just as God talked about. That's who we are. And so I think that's, a good, again, a good reminder. God is the one who does it. God is the one who measures the success of it. No one else does. May he be our vision forever. Now, let's look at a few fun, maybe measurables, just for fun, like the nickels, noses, um, nail, nickels, nails, and noses that churches count all the time. So the first one is nickels. Um, some of us get this email every week. Um, on the giving, this is the one from the end of the year, the last day. You're, some of you don't recognize it. You're not having a hard time figuring it out just from the screen. That's okay. But we keep close track of, of the money that we spend and the money that comes in and how it's budgeted and all that kind of stuff, uh, which is vitally important to the operation of any group of human beings, whether it's your family um, or your business and certainly a church. Um, God has been super faithful, and we are a generous church. Um, so let me summarize some of this for you, just the, more easy, just the easiest way possible at this point. So you'll know, um, this is a little bit of the state of the union part of this uh, conversation we have every January. At this point, it looks like, and again, we're, there's still details to be hammered out, but we're going to be close to this. We came to the end of the year bringing in $90,000 more than we intended, than we budgeted to bring in. So if you're wondering if that, if you're like, I don't know accounting, that's good news. That's all you got to know. Like, that's good news. We brought in 90000 more than we budgeted. That's great. Now, if you've been around for a while or you've been on leadership board, you're like, gosh, it seems like most years it's more like one hundred and fifty or 250000 that we bring in more. You're right. This has been a tougher year from, from that perspective. I think for all of us, um, anybody else feel like there's 20 to 30% inflation over the last few years and everything is costing a lot more? I certainly do. You do. So that affects us. For sure that affects us. Notice that even under those conditions, this church is a generous church that gives 90000 more than the church budget. Now, we also budget very conservatively. That's part of that. We are very conservative and careful about the way we budget, which I assume is a big part of why we don't have massive crowds during our budgeting information meetings. And by not massive crowds, I mean no one ever comes. Uh, so we offer it. But I'm always, I tell the group, like, there's, there's a fine line between trust and just flat neglect and complacency. And I, I feel like as a church, we hover. So anyway, that's a... Uh, so 90,000 more. Good, other good news, we're confident on spending. Now, again, there's more numbers need to be run here, but um, that we are below expenses by another couple hundred thousand dollars. So we've spent a couple hundred thousand dollars less than we thought we would. Don't get excited about that for 2024. A lot of that was payroll and their positions that have now been filled. And so you just have that in your brain. But again, more good news. We are likely to end the year two to three hundred thousand dollars better than, more money came in than we spent. 
All good news. That's very exciting that God has been faithful and that you have been faithful um, to be generous in that way. Also, now this also greatly affects it. $5.2 million has been pledged to the Faithful Next Step campaign. Um, 2.7 is already in hand. Um, that's going to be for the new student ministry building and then the change of the old student ministry building into an office complex and, a, and an actual church office, and then also to change this building to create education space in this building. Um, and so that's, those are the processes that are going to happen there. We can talk more about that if you ever want. To do that, so 2.7 is already in hand, which is amazing. Um, to do what we've designed, we probably need another 750-ish thousand to be pledged and then a total and given, thus meaning a total of about 3.25 million more need to be given over the next two-ish years. Very doable. Like it's very exciting to see that God has done this. This is to be so that we can build everything we that we believe we need to build in the next couple of years with zero debt. Um, if you don't know, our church carries no debt, and so that's a, a gift that God gave us, and that First Baptist helped give us years ago. So praise praise God for that as well. Finally, maybe most exciting. There are thousands, thousands upon thousands of, of missionaries and needy ministries and others who need to be supported and taken care of by the church around the world, whether they're taking care of starving people or people without water or people without the gospel or all of those things. Our church, South Spring Baptist Church, gave $530,000 last year alone to invest in other ministries and mission organizations. So our goal, we give 15% of everything that comes in, goes right back out to other ministries that we have vetted and that we partner with. Um, and so the goal is to get to 20% eventually, uh, but this is a huge gift that we get to give away half a million dollars on a $3 million budget. Um, so that's super exciting that we get to do that. So we budget conservatively. We try to be careful with that. Now you've got your quick update this is a generous church that God has blessed richly. We'll talk more about that um, in a minute. So a couple of other things that have happened this, the last few years that have been building and that we want to comment on. If you don't know, we have two podcasts we host here from the church. They represent several hundred followers. Um, a lot of this is meant to help, again, help make disciples, especially the Reconstructed Faith podcast is meant to help you. Many of you have family members, friends, um, children and grandchildren who are walking away from the faith, who are, quote, deconstructing their faith. And we wanted to provide a resource that you can either share with them or best listen to with them and discuss with them. What we, the main concept here is that we know that everyone deconstructs their faith. That's called growth. Everybody deconstructs and reconstructs. That's called growth. That's what you're doing when you work out, is you're deconstructing and reconstructing muscles. That's how that works. So there's not, it's not something we're afraid of. We want to help walk people through that process. How do you do that well? And, and so that you don't just have a moment. We, we always compare it to that moment. Deconstructing your faith is like watching one of those um, construction shows that used to be on, and they would go, move that bus. And if they moved the bus and there was a big pile of rubble on the hill, you would go, I I think y'all left a step out somewhere, like there's a, something missing. We need to have the opportunity, the freedom, and the guidance to reconstruct our faith um, as we grow as Christians. Now, <clears throat> part of what I want you to know about me as we talk about today and next week is that I have learned, this is a learning thing, this is not the way I'm wired, I have learned to love when things grow organically. Um, it, it was my, as a young man, it was my instinct to think that things should grow because I tell them to. 
um, that it's that I just kick in the door and I tell you the way it's supposed to be, and then that's what happens. Make it happen. I was I would be na- I'm naturally more of a George Patton type of leader. Leave blood and guts in the pathway and and do our tread our tanks. Uh, you know, oil our tread of our tanks with them. So that's a like that's a natural tendency. Me, God broke me of that. Gave me the opportunity to repent and to learn differently and to learn that what healthy growth looks like is organic. I've learned to love to tend the soil and to get it good intended and plant the seed and nurture that seed and nurture that sapling as it grows and tend to it and prune it and help it grow. And over time, eventually, healthy fruit begins to be produced. It is the temptation of all of us, including you, including me, to just tie grapes on thorn bushes and call it done. We are not producing grapes at that moment. We've all seen it. How many of us grew up in churches that a defining term of that church would be unhealthy? And one of my goals for this church is that we experience the grace and freedom that Christ has for us, and we experience the truth that he has for us, and we integrate that in a way that is healthy. That is part of my goal. It's a distinctive, I think, from sadly, a distinctive for many of our church experiences growing up, is that we do this in a way that's healthy. The way that's done healthy is organically. You are going to get impatient at how things change around here. I am too. That when you say, well, why, why has, why, you know, changes we're starting to see, you go, oh, we're starting to see some changes, for example, in women's ministry right now in the church, some new power and strength and leadership in the women's ministry in our church. That's not new, it's just new at the surface. The fruit is finally beginning to grow organically from what we've been working on for years to get to this place where we can begin to do that. We know it's a potent, powerful ministry, but what we, what we believe is that it's something that people within the church need to learn and grow and be discipled into being able to lead those things. It's not just something the staff is going to color in for you and draw the picture and put numbers on it and all you've got to do is paint it in. No, it's something that we believe that the church as a whole does and it can do in a healthy way. Um, the overhaul, by the way, and you may have noticed, if you haven't, that's fine. Um, we can undo it and then you would notice it. Um, but overhauling the AV experience in here, light and sound is all being redone in this room. That's a big project, a big expense. Um, we've been working on it for quite a while. We've had several people like Spencer J. Keith Henson runs some real key traps for us, lay people in the church. Obviously, David Self, Chad Larsh, and so many others who are keep our AV um, stuff, our audiovisual stuff going. But I also want to make sure you know, because many of you are probably going like, what does John do now that he's not on stage anymore? This is a big part of what he does is he manages big projects like this, um, especially AV type stuff. He's in charge of all of that. And he's over almost all of ministry support stuff like IT. All of IT reports to him. That's a big job at a church this size. All of audiovisual stuff reports to him. That's a big job at a church this size. Some churches our size have teams uh, of paid staff who do that kind of stuff. Um, John's over that, including all of the online type stuff, how to improve that and grow that. If you've noticed an improvement over the last year or so, six months to a year in our sound quality and stuff on Sunday morning, a big part of that is John taking point on the board back there and helping us do that and making some of these big changes. So you'll notice the old, these, these are no longer hooked up, but see the yellow speakers here? Um, those were not yellow when they were bought in, 20, in 2002, uh, which is when those were put in. And 10 years later, the, white, the more white, they're not totally white, white ones above those, those are what we had. Now the first step of change is the, is the black arrays that are up there and the light, we'll see lights change, stage changing, all that kind of stuff over the next month or two 
Um, and all of that is, there, that replies a lot of work, thousands of stuff, thousands of dollars going into that, lots of hours of time. By the way, the other thing John is over is hospitality, which means groups that use our church. Um, so here's what's wild. Every, every year we have thousands, I'm not kidding, thousands of people come just for birthday parties. This is a church for hosting birthday parties. If, you're, if you have a birthday between now and March and you've not already booked your birthday party, tough. It's booked. The church is entirely booked for birthday parties for the first three months of the year. That's when you offer something free to the community and it's done well, people take advantage of that, which is exactly what we want. I want to pull in the parking lot. I hate empty church parking lots and empty church buildings. All these thousands, millions of dollars spent and they don't get used enough. I want it to be used and ours is used, which requires a lot of work on everybody's part. It's very exciting stuff to see. Um, But birthday parties alone represent thousands of... uh, uh, Anyway, so... It cracks me up how much how this gets used, and I love it. I love it, love it. So how, let's talk about noses. Let's transition over to noses. Um, uh, I want to show you this just so we can all experience a little PTSD together. This was the popu- This was 2020. So remember 2020? Hmm, that was such a year. So before COVID, you remember that? Uh, COVID. So pre-COVID, we were looking about 250 people on average in the first service and about 600 people in the second service. So, you know, 850-ish people total before COVID. I'll show you some stuff that's kind of wild here in a second. By after COVID, by the end of the year, when we started coming back, (laughs) first nobody for a couple of months, and then just one service for a little while, and eventually the second service, we had about 350 total. That's how far we had come back towards 850. We were at 350. So these are our numbers. Those of you who like graphs, these are our numbers now from 2022. So January 2022 all the way until December 2023. Um, it doesn't include Christmas Eve on there. Can anybody spot Easter? <laughs> yeah. Um, it's not hard to spot. Um, and so, and that's just a glitch there on the, on the middle of the, that, that number that goes down there, just a, a missed number. But the, the, um, you can see the general, the general growth from the beginning of 2022. We've continued to grow. Um, the 9 a.m. service has aver- gone from averaging about 200-ish people to averaging 400-ish people. So that's significant growth since 2022, beginning of 2022. The 10.30 service, this one, has gone from about 350-ish to about 500-ish, <coughs> which you can see already is somewhat less than what used to, 100 less than what came pre-COVID to this service. But it's a whole lot more that came and the first service then came before COVID. For whatever reason, the two services are nearer in number. That 150 people are now coming to the first service who didn't used to, and some 100 people less are coming to this one on average. Which is, by the way, good, good news. It's so much easier to plan for the future when the services are nearer uh, in number. It, it was really becoming scary how we were going to do about that, so it's great news. But notice that total means... That now from 2022, at the beginning of 2022, we had about 600-ish total on Sunday mornings. Uh, just in the service, there's more people proper. There's another 300 people on property. But to 900-ish now um, in the two services combined. Now, if you did your math, you will go back and realize we're now about averaging about 50 more people on Sunday morning than we were pre-COVID. So again, we have, we have truly numerically recovered finally from COVID this year, which is amazing. It's also crazy to consider that that's the case, um, that where we were. So on Easter with three services, 
We built the whole Faithful Next Step uh, campaign based on the idea that someday we could have 2,000 people um, on a Sunday with three services, um, between Sunday and maybe Saturday night services. But that was really theoretical. We thought we could. It looked like we could. And then this last Easter, we did. We had 2,000 people on property across three services this last Easter. It's no longer theoretical. We actually can do it. The third service isn't even on this map. So um, that's exciting. Christmas Eve... To recognize, for those of you who are here on Christmas Eve, on Christmas Eve we had three services and we had just shy of 1,500 people here on Christmas Eve this year. Um, and so again, new, new records there. The, this year has gone up and down, of course, as they always do, um, but with slight, overall, some, some meaningful but slight, in my opinion, more healthy growth. So most Sunday mornings also include, by the way, in addition to this, 220 preschoolers that typically they, they are not in here. They don't come either service. 144 grade schoolers, most of whom do come here at least one service. 103 students-ish on average, most of whom do come here. And then uh, during the week, we have another 94 hand-in-hand kids who come to the, the child care stuff that we do during the week, um, which is really cool. Hand-in-hand program, if you're not familiar with it. Um, last year, we had 205 new members which is fantastic. There's 52 weeks in a year, so 205 new members, about four a week. Um, We had at least, we don't know for sure because they don't always count on Sunday mornings. We do them at all other times. They don't always get counted. We had at least 45 baptisms um, during last year. Again, that's phenomenal. That front church our size, those are are really great numbers, Um, exciting. We had over 200 birthday parties, told you. Um, plus other scheduled conferences, trainings, gatherings, practices, tournaments, groups, you name it. Well over 20,000 people, and probably more like double that if you count everybody, um, used our property. The strategic way of we engage with people using our property is something we're continuing to work and grow with. Okay, those are the nails, the numbers, the noses. You've got that, those in, in mind. Clearly, God is being faithful with us, um, and we're, we're working hard to be faithful with him. Now, I want to get to that question I said, the cultural crossroads where we are. Um, so I'm going to do that. If you have any questions about any of those, well, one, you can raise your hand and I'll stop and I'll answer your question. Or you can reach out to me and I will happily discuss it with you. So, no, I didn't think so. So, but the, the, question, the question we would I, would, I would, by the way, so you know, like, I'm totally cool with that any Sunday. You will not bother me. Freaks most of you out, but it doesn't bother me a bit. Is somebody like, eh, eh. so, um, Okay. Here's the question that's being asked in our culture right now. How do we get a utopia? Where do we find utopia? Where do we find the best life possible? Where do we get that? That is the debate our culture is having right now at deep levels. Here's the question. Can humanity create utopia by ourselves? Can our policies, our education, our money, self-help and therapy, politics, justice reform, etc., Can those alone in the hands of humans bring about utopia? Can we get everything right? Can we eventually create eternal life through genetic manipulation, medical advances, or technology of some kind? No, this is the truth. Your pursuit of utopia is your religion. Whatever your pursuit of utopia is, that is your religion. And more than half of Americans would say, this is our hope for utopia, that someday human beings will be able to make it happen. It's amazing now to hear people talk in terms of absolute blind faith in humanity 
to accomplish this. In the science to accomplish this. In pick whatever it is to accomplish. It's amazing to hear it. Well, maybe someday, maybe, how do you know that someday we won't come up with some kind of advance? Like, do you understand that the phrase, maybe someday we might do something? That's called blind faith. I don't know, maybe God someday will, okay, that can be blind faith as well. That's, blind faith is a thing. It's not the faith that matters, it's the subject of the faith that matters. If your faith, blind or not, is in humanity, I'm worried for you. I've met humans before. I don't think it's going to go well. So that's the one question. The second, or does this utopia have to come from a divine source? Can eternal life, happiness, purpose, value only come from a creator who has a plan for our lives, our eternal lives? Is it going to require his help or is self-help sufficient? Is his kingdom going to have to come or can human governments accomplish this? Can we usher in an age of true justice or will he have to usher that in? That's the question being asked in our culture. And the majority of Americans have decided humans are our best hope. Now, the key to Christianity is that we would say, we have actually found the best hope we have for this in the person, Jesus Christ of Nazareth. This is the best hope we have for a utopia, for heaven, for meaning and purpose and all the things that come with that. That's our best shot. That's what we say. And here's what strikes me about this. What do you do when you discover an awesome new restaurant? You tell everybody. I mean, if you go to a new restaurant, you go to a new Mexican restaurant, and it's the best queso you've ever had, you're going to tell everybody, right? I mean, it's queso. It's awesome. We're letting the world know. What do you do the minute a funny, awesome, or intriguing little video shows up on your social media feed? You share it. It's the first. You like, you share, you subscribe. Like, that's what you do. Click share, which is funny that we say click because we don't push any button. I was like, what do I even put there? Do we push a button? Do we do that? I don't think we push any. It's just click. We just suddenly are like, bam, I like this. I share it. And we're talking about a cat video <laughs> or, or, Hey, did you know that this dress looks different color to different people? And we're like, oh, guess what? You won't believe this mind blown, right? Do we do that about the utopia that we've discovered? Do we do that in the same way? Do we think in those terms? And please, I'm not talking about the you know, if you really love Jesus, you'll share this. That's not, the, that's not what I'm talking about on social media. That's, anyway, but that is a... But do we do it in our lives? Do we tell our friends and family? Do we communicate this at all? What happens if it comes from a divine source only? I literally, I, I took so many new people to go fish. The sushi restaurant here in town. And, new, and I'd be like, you got it. You never tried it. You got to go. I'll take it. I took so many new people that I walked in one day and they're like, you deserve a keychain. And they gave me a sushi keychain. Like... You, you, you bring so many new people, we're giving you a keychain. It's like, okay, I mean, it seems random, but okay, let's, let's, let's go with that, right? That is the, do we do that here? So we're going we're gonna to unpack that a little more. Here's what that's called. It's called evangelism. You may hear evangelism think, oh, I've got to go with the four spiritual, like, evangelism means good news. I share this good news. I found queso. And I want you to know about this good thing I've experienced. There's a video of a, of a middle-aged woman laughing with a Chewbacca mask. It's hilarious. You remember her? You remember her? Yeah. 
forgot about her, didn't you? You're like, this is the funniest thing I've seen forever. I'm sharing it with all my friends. Do we do that? Have we lost that pattern? It was the original message about Jesus from Luke. Spending a little time there. Behold, the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news. That's the same Greek word, evangelism. It comes from the word you, or good, from you, and angel, meaning messenger. We are the good, we have the good message to give, but we're so hesitant to share it. We have found cool, fresh, running water in the desert, and it's like we're hoarding it. We're so afraid of the social consequences of sharing it. Is the word getting out? I don't think it is. Here are the newest numbers when it comes to church attendance in America. The gold number is the percentage of people who never attend. This starts in the year 2000, only 20 years ago. In 20 years, that's how the percentage of people who never attend church has climbed. The purple one is the people who, who attend every week, the percentage of people who attend every week. It has done the exact opposite. They've crossed over in the center. Those who attend about once a month, much more stable about attending once a month. That one hasn't changed as much. But look at that. Those who never attend or those who always attend, they've something, we're missing something. We have missed a message somewhere along the way. Now, of course, this isn't about church. Getting someone to church is not somehow you've done your job. That's not what we're talking about. But what we're talking about is this is what's wild. Church attendance, or at least people aren't connecting to the local church. And I submit this is because we have bought into a lie from our culture that it's intrusive and offensive to invite someone into your life if it has anything to do with God. And we've bought into it. We're like, oh, I don't want to offend anybody. I don't want to make somebody uncomfortable. I don't want to, here's what's wild. I don't know about you. I've never in my life been offended when I've been invited somewhere. That has never been offensive to me. I've been invited to some crazy situations and some crazy places and whatever, and I've never thought like, how dare you invite me? I thought like, I I'm not going, but thanks for the invite, right? <laughs> I appreciate that you asked. That was very kind. Thank you very much. See, here's the deal. It isn't that we're lacking of the truth, although that's a problem as well, but in this church it certainly isn't. But these guys have the truth too. But they're not very inviting. And I don't think those things have to be contradictory. We don't have to compromise on the message in order to be invitational. In order to say, this water might save you. This person is who you're looking for. We have to remember to be inviting. We have to remember to invite. We're not very good at it. And we need to be better at doing that. I want to encourage, even if you ask yourself, when's the last time you invited someone to church, a friend or a family member? That's more important. Strangers? Great, fine. I'm telling you, I actually want people to be annoyed by us in Tyler. I would love nothing more than to get a phone call, a complaint to the lead pastor saying, your people keep inviting us to church and it's becoming annoying. And I will go, I'm so, so, so sorry. Come Sunday and we'll talk about it. That's what I'll tell them. <laughs> like, right? I will love to talk with you about it on Sunday or Wednesday night. You could come in. It's dinner. So, or any other time. We're inviting them. The good news isn't about church. I don't want to misunderstand. The good news isn't about church. The good news is about the person of Jesus Christ. We need to invite people to meet him. I'm going to talk more about, I'm going to wrap up with that in just a second, but we need to meet, we want to invite them to meet him. Where do they meet him? In our lives, in our homes, in our life groups, in our Bible studies, in our games, in our 
families and in our church. There's nothing wrong with this as part of the process, part of where we're inviting people, and we need to be doing more. It's a huge risk than inviting people alone, by the way. Being inviting without truth is of no value. That's, that's a total waste. We're not inviting somebody just to come hang out. That's, that's inviting them. That, that's sharing the cat video. I want to invite them into a life-changing, utopia, hopeful experience where they can have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, where they can, under, where they can discover a hundredfold mothers and brothers and sisters and lands and, yes, maybe persecution someday. I think one of the things that our church does that I'm excited about is that, that it may, again, may be unique in some ways, hopefully not, and hopefully less so, is that we're integrating truth and love in a way that is healthy. And that's our goal, is that it's healthy. We're able to do that in a way that's there. So where does invitation fall into our church's strategy? We'll unpack this very quickly. I'm going to talk about this some more, but we have this thing we call the conveyor belt um, with the leaders in our church where we take strangers and we turn them into ministers. It's our conveyor belt. And by strategy, I don't mean staff strategy. I mean church ministry strategy. To make sure you understand, it isn't that the church is the spectators and the staff are the players. It is that the world are the spectators. You, the church members, the church are the players. The, the staff, we're now coaches. We've, we don't get to play as much as we'd like to because we're on the sidelines now somehow trying to coach and guide. That's the healthier form of growth. It is vital that Christian followers are at work and that we're praying for God to send more workers. So this is our actual, through Matthew 28, this is the church great co-mission for all of us that we go make disciples. And what do disciples do? They go make disciples. That's the actual process. That's what church growth is supposed to, the church growth is supposed to look like is disciples, making disciples, making disciples. So our first step towards discipleship through the local church, meaning to minister to someone who's now prepared to actually go make disciples, is turning strangers into guests. And we do that, we have discovered here, through generosity. That by being generous with people, and part of that is about welcoming them into our lives, taking them to lunch and paying for it, getting time with them, spending the most important asset that we have, time, with people and on people. And then when people come and they discover, oh, we can use a church for a birthday party for free, or I can, I can come here and host a conference here and train people and charge for it and make money, and you still don't charge me to do it. What is that all about? It's a community property. This is, this is something we want people to use. They come to the fireworks and like, how much for the little tattoos and how much for the light sticks? Like, nothing, nothing, nothing. We don't charge for any of that stuff. You just come and we want, you to, we want to celebrate you and you experience that. When people come here on Sunday morning and they experience coffee and donuts and, and that kind of stuff and no one's charging them for it. The church spends tens of thousands of dollars a year on this stuff in an effort to say, we love you and we want to support you. We want to encourage you because this is a generous church. And people see that, and they go, I want to learn more. I want to become now uh, your guest. I want to be your guest, and that's part of our passion. Generosity teaches us that we shouldn't lay up treasures on earth. That's all generosity means for a Christian, is that we're investing the resources we have into things that are eternal, like people. It's a good investment because it can't go away, it can't be destroyed, and our hearts are then following it to a healthy spot. Our heart follows our treasure. It's not a nice thing that Jesus said about us, but it is true. Our heart follows our treasure. Where we invest is where we live. Um, we have this Luke, again, Jesus in Luke is going to warn several times against trusting in wealth. He's going to warn us off of that. And we're all pretty wealthy. 
We may not feel it relative to one another, but relative to everybody else in the world, we're all very wealthy. And so for us to recognize, okay, what are we doing with this? What do we do with the abundance? Warning that we don't entrust in them, but we find ways to invest in them. I'm not, I, w- William Barclay says some brilliant, I don't agree with a lot of stuff Barclay says, but I love this statement that he talks about. The teaching of the Christian ethic is not that wealth is a sin, but it's a great responsibility. Are we living generously? Are we buying time and then investing it in eternal things? Are we investing in our own skill sets and investing in eternal things, in our family, in our spouses, in our kids, in our friends, in family, in our community, all those different things? This is going to be, Paul is quoting here, I think he's citing Jesus here when he talks about this in 1 Timothy Um, charge the rich not to be haughty or to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. If you've been around long, you've seen it come and you've seen it go because that's what riches do. That's the nature of them. And so for us to make sure we're investing them in things that can't be taken, to be generous and ready to share. Storing up treasures not here on earth, but as a good foundation for the future, the eternal future, that which is truly life. There is an invitation. So I want you to hear. The first place where invitation shows up on our conveyor belt is actually before the conveyor belt shows up. For someone to be a stranger who's going to experience generosity, they've got to meet us. And that's something we've got to be doing, which is wild when you consider what people, when people come to church, why do they come? All those different things. And we don't even have the advantage of the 8 to 10% who like the pastor here. What we've got to focus on more is the 70 to 85% invited by a relative or a friend. That's how we people come. Look at this number from Billy Graham's numbers. Most of us know at least seven unchurched people, according to them, seven unchurched people. They conducted a national survey and said 82% of non-church said they would come to church with a friend if they were invited. So the fact that they're not here... Unless they're lying, and maybe they are, but unless they're lying, the reason they're not here is because we've not asked. Our family and friends, and we don't. Most of us don't. If you think about the people you know right now who don't go to church, my guess is you haven't invited them. My guess is you haven't invited them to church. You haven't invited them to your family or to a Bible study or to any of the different ways that they could get involved and get invested. This is the key. I'm going to close on this thought on why we do this, on how we do this, because I want you to hear something. I love inviting people to this church. I love bringing people here and introducing them to you. I, I think you're amazing people. I love, I love challenging people. I'll meet someone who's an unchurched person or even an anti-church person. I'm like, I dare you to come. See if you can come and not feel good, better about yourself after you come. See if you can come and not be welcomed. I mean, do your best introvert Try to sneak in. Find an introvert's entrance. Sneak in. I know some of y'all do that. Try to sneak in. Get in without being greeted. See if you can pull it off. If you can, let me know so I can yell at people. But if you don't, just like, I want you to experience that. And they come back and they're like, yes, it was a great experience. Everyone was clearly happy I was there. They seemed to like each other. They may not even be happy about it, but they're like, yes, this is a group of people who clearly love each other and they were proud that I was there. I encourage you with that. I love introducing people to this generous church and bragging about you. I love when people visit our church or in other places. I love introducing them to my wife. I'm so proud of her, and I love to get to introduce people to her. And especially in this service when she's here, I know there have got to be people over the years who have thought I was like ditching them, that they're like, hi, I'm Chris. I'm the pastor. I'm like, hi, I'm, I'm Chris, and this is my wife, Ginger. You need to talk to her. You know, but, but Lance told me years ago, one of the number one predictors of whether someone comes back a second Sunday is whether they meet her. 
It's where they meet Ginger. By name, if you met Ginger the first time you were here, you're probably still here. That's an amazing thing. Like that's, she has that gift of that, of letting you know that. I'm proud to introduce you to my spouse because she's the, she's the one who you probably ought to get to know. Right? That's how that works. Anybody know this guy? No, you don't. His name is Tom Ackerley. You don't know Tom. Does that help if I do a full body? No, still nothing? What if I told you that's Barbie's husband? That's Margot Robbie's husband. Now, some of you in the audience are, are like Ginger was, and she said, who's Margot Robbie? So you, don't, you have no idea who that is. So that's, the rest of you, you're like, oh, amazing. Wow. Probably the most famous actress right now in Hollywood, right? So I'll help you out. You don't know who this is either. But she's been married to Denzel Washington for 40 years as of this year. How often do you think they get introduced by their spouse as, as their spouse's spouse? How often do you think that happens? The Tom Ackerley, how often do you think like somebody, somebody meets Tom Ackerley at a, at a Hollywood party, you know, some famous person gets to meet him, and as they walk away, the famous person's like, who, who was that? That's Margot Robbie's husband. Oh, oh, okay. Who was that? Who, Pauletta who? That's Denzel Washington's wife. Oh, oh. How often do you think that happens? Every time. That's how often that happens. 100% of the time, they get introduced like that, right? We, we're not the famous member of this marriage. That's Jesus. We're, the, we're not the famous member of this. If you go, well, I don't want to introduce this to us. We're not that special. Right. You're right. But if they get to know us, we might get introduce them to the groom in this situation as the bride. That we can tell people, no, no, we want you to meet us because I want to introduce you to my famous partner. This guy named Jesus. You may have heard of him. I want you to get to know him. He's the, he's the famous one I want you to get to know. He's the one who will keep you around. Us? Probably not so much. Him? Absolutely. That's what it means to invite someone into the church, is we're inviting them to meet the bride in the hopes that they get to meet the groom in the process. So it's not something we need to be embarrassed or ashamed of. This is the picture. This is where I'm going to pick up next week as we unpack the continuation of this, of this um, uh, uh, conveyor belt to move people from where this is to where this is. And I'm going to focus. So the first part, the first half, the easy half of being inviting is before the conveyor belt even starts. Invite strangers to become strangers who then meet us. That's the first step. Are we doing that? If you will stand with me. And I want you to be thinking. So some of you, this is news. You didn't know there was a God who loved you like this and who wanted you to be a part of, of his life and who is inviting you to, be, to have eternal life with him. And you might want to come talk to somebody about that. There's a lot of people here who would love to. Maybe you've been through our welcome home, team, or welcome home process and you're ready to come and join this dysfunctional family and come be a part of, this, uh, part of who we are and live out church together. If that's you, make sure and come do that here in a second. For the rest of us, I want us to pray. I'm going to pray, and I want you to pray, and I want you to be thinking about some family or friends because, let me tell you, they're lonely. They're in isolation. They're maybe even afraid. And here's the deal. They're not going to just randomly show up. People don't do that hardly ever anymore. They feel weird enough as it is coming here with you to this strange place where we do strange things. That's going to be hard enough for them. But the thought of asking them, like, well, they should just show up because there's a church, so they should come. No one does that anymore. That's really rare nowadays. They need to have you say, I want you to be where I am on Sunday morning. If they've already got a church they're invested and involved in, leave them. There's plenty of others who aren't getting invited. Those are the ones of your friends and your family I want you to invite. Invite them to come here to meet us so that we can introduce him, them to him.